But let's open in a word of prayer and then we'll look, continue to look at Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. Let's open a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that um, we can come here to our own personal copy of it and hold it in our hand and read it with our own eyes, knowing that it is true, that it's your word, and Lord, that your instruction to us is to study it and hide it, hide it in our heart and our mind. And Lord, we pray tonight as we look at the call of Gideon that you would um, make this uh, practical to us and uh, just help us to apply it to our own lives. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, tonight we're just going to look at uh, verses 11 through 24 of Judges chapter 6. And it's in relation to the call of Gideon, the next judge. Over the next uh, couple weeks here, we'll be looking at at Gideon. And uh, he was a man who led a uh, handful of warriors, the Bible tells us, against a far larger army, and he actually won, with God's assistance, the victory. And that's one picture of Gideon. And on the other side, you see uh, a man who is filled with doubts and fears and questions, yet he was the man that God called for his plan during this time. And so he did God's will. As a result, and so he was called as a judge during a time of intense trouble for Israel. And so we want to go through this tonight. And so we can read, uh, beginning in verse 11, we'll just read our text and then we'll make some comments on it through the outline there. It says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abazite. Abzerite, which his son Gideon was beating out, while his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, verse 15, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he, and he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my uh, present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from the ephah of flour. 
the meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and he brought them to him under the <coughs> terebinth and presented them. And the angel of the Lord said to him, take the meat in the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. Duh. (laughs) And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Put the, but the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. But Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is peace. To this day it stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abizarites. <coughs> so we see here Gideon, it says right from the beginning, his circumstances were not all that good. Uh, his name means one who cuts down. But the circumstances in which he finds Israel at was, if you look back at verse um, 6, it tells us, we saw this last week, that they were, uh, they were brought very low, or they were impoverished. They were, they were at a, a very bad place. They were being oppressed by the Midianites, because God, the Lord, gave them into their hand as a form of discipline. <laughs> they weren't doing the right thing, once again. And we saw that last week. Uh, that word brought lower, impoverished, some translations say, it really literally means that they were at the end of their rope. They didn't have anywhere else to go. They didn't know what else to do. And the the people of Israel, the people of Israel basically knew this. And their nation was destroyed, they thought, and their lives were over. And they counted basically God out of the picture at this point. They just thought, you know what, there's no hope. We're done. And sometimes people reach that <laughs> point in their own lives. Uh, they get to the point where they're at the end of the rope and they don't even think God can help them. But they did cry out to God and uh, I don't think they believed that he was going to answer them at this point, but they, they did cry out to him. And they probably thought, well, you know what, he's not going to be able to do anything anyway, but let's just do this. And sometimes people cry out of their misery, <coughs> and uh, they don't really believe that God's going to help them, but it's just kind of one last desperate act. But here we saw last week that God didn't raise up a judge, but he raised up what? He raised up a prophet. And so instead of a deliverer, God raised up an unknown prophet who delivered a message to them, and God always has. A message, And when God has a message, he always has a man waiting to fulfill that. And so in verses 7 to 10, God sent them a prophet to remind them of God's grace in their lives and call them back to repentance. Uh, sometimes we don't 
completely understand that God's grace can be uh, camouflaged. We don't really understand it as grace. So when we read through last week, verse 1 of chapter 6, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. We think, yeah, God, get them. That's God's judgment. No, that's God's grace. Fulfilled through his judgment. And so sometimes we have a hard time understanding that. Because we think that God's judgment is something that is apart from his grace. But sometimes God's judgment is his grace. He loves us so much, he's willing to intercede, to discipline us, to judge us, whatever it might be, to to bring us to our knees, because he knows that's the very, very best thing for us. And yet, so many times in our Christian lives, as soon as something goes off the rails and it goes wrong, we think, oh, this is you know, God punishing me or whatever. But it may be God extending his grace to us. And sometimes we don't see it. And so some people call that God's grace camouflaged. Uh, camouflage has become something of a, I guess, a fashion statement for some people. You know, you can go to the mall and you see people wearing camouflage. And what do they do? When you see somebody in camouflage, they're not camouflaged. (laughs) They what? They stand out, right? I mean, (laughs) if you see somebody in the mall dressed in camis or camouflage, you go, whoa, that's that's interesting. Okay, that kind of catches your eye. But that's not the purpose of the camouflage. Originally, the, the purpose of camouflage is to what? It's to conceal, to hide. And sometimes we don't clearly see God's grace the way he meant for us to see it. We look at it kind of one-dimensionally, like, well, God's grace is God's favor on us all the time. So when everything is going great in our lives and we have no trouble at all, then we think, well, that's God's grace. But if we have a problem, (laughs) then what do we do? God's disciplining us or God's... But it's still an aspect of his grace. And so we, we, we don't want to lose sight of that. And so as... We see here in this text, this, this name Gideon means to cut down. He who cuts down. And Gideon didn't bring much to the table. He didn't offer much at the time he was called. Um, but in the end, we're going to see he's the one that's responsible. God uses him to cut down God's enemies and cut down the enemies of God's people. And so let's look at a couple things here. First of all, his, his circumstances. Uh, the call of Gideon as we look at this. Verse 11, it tells us there, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Ebizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. Remember, last week we said they were being oppressed by all these enemies, and one of them was the Midianites. And so the Midianites would wait for the Israelites to take all their grain down and thresh it out, and then what would they do? They would come down, and they would capture all the grain that the Israelites worked so hard for, and they would take it home. And this went on and on for several years 
And so it was a time here of poverty for Israel. They didn't have a lot during these days. They were desperate days. It's kind of like, think of the Great Depression or something like that. And verses 4 to 6 makes that clear, and we looked at that last week. And so Gideon and his family had been able to hide at least a small part of a small amount of wheat, and uh, they were threshing it behind a wine press to hide it from the Midianites. They didn't want them to see them doing that, or they would come and steal it. And so what they would do back then is wheat was usually laid out on a special piece of ground prepared uh, for this kind of threshing to take place. And the ground was very, usually very hard, like a clay, very hard. And they would uh, throw the, uh, the, the, the wheat down there and they would have basically a, um, a sled that they would pull around or walk around the grain and, and it would have some weight to it with some stones on it or whatever and it would run over the grain and it would actually break and cut the grain down to the point where uh, the, the actual wheat could be winnowed out. And so the, the person, after they would do this process of grinding this stuff up, they would come in with a pitchfork and they'd throw it up in the air and on a windy day, the wind would blow away all the chaff and the grain would fall to the ground. And that's how they, the process, they had to do it. Now, usually this is done in a pretty big area, but, and sometimes they would use an animal to pull the, the, the sled around. But here it says that he was doing it with a small amount of wheat, which meant that he didn't have a whole lot. All right. And um, he, 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 he basically was doing it by his own hand. And so he didn't have a whole lot of wheat to work with. So, and that's why I say it's a time of, of poverty for, for Israel and, and for Gideon and his family. They didn't have a lot here. But it was also a time of persecution. You notice he's hiding because he knew these Midianites would take the, the grain that he had, even though it was a small amount. Uh, if they knew about it, they would come and they would take it and they would once again have nothing. So they were being persecuted. They were being oppressed. And that was invited by God's hand into their life. And that's, we, can't, we can't forget that. Um, back in, in verse 6, or verse 1 of, of chapter 6, it tells us very clearly, the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. Sometimes, as Christians even, we cannot conceive of the Lord doing anything like this in our lives. And so we think if it's something that's a trial or a tribulation or a sickness or something, well, that's the enemy, right? That's what the Word of Faith movement has taught us. Well, that's, you just got to rebuke the enemy. You know, you can't be sick. You, know, you just rebuke that COVID, whatever it might be. Okay, rebuke that flu. Um, well, that doesn't, it doesn't make sense, all right, for a variety of reasons. But one of them is, is God may have allowed that to happen in your life for a purpose. I know several people who've contracted cancer and you talk to them today and you ask them, boy, you know, that must have been tough. Uh, probably don't want to go through that again. And almost to a one, and these are believers, they would tell me, you know what? No, I, I wouldn't change a thing. Because allowing me to go through that changed my heart toward God. 
it made a difference in my heart. And even though it wasn't a, a fun time, all right, we were listening to a live stream with MacArthur, and they said he was saying that one question people always ask him, what would you do if you could go back in your life and change anything? And he says, I always give them the same answer. I would sin less and love more. But other than that, I wouldn't change anything. Well, what about the hard times? What about the time you almost you know, died when you went in the hospital with your knee or when you were thrown out of the car or when your wife almost you know, broke her neck or whatever it was? He goes, no, that's God's providence. God allowed that for a purpose. And it was, it was carrying out its divine purpose in my life. And, and he talked a little bit about the providence of God. And see, as believers, that's where we need to be reminded. But here in Israel, they were under this time of persecution, but it, 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 it came as a result of their disobedience, but it came from the hand of God. And so we don't want to forget that. And then the third thing here was a time of powerlessness. Um, that's found very basically there, that, that, that Gideon was beating out the wheat in the wine press. Why? To hide. He was hiding. He was hiding. Here he is, supposed to be this leader, <laughs> this judge who's going to deliver him. Where's he at? He's hiding. That doesn't sound like much of a leader. And he's just as defeated and he's just as frightened as the rest of Israel is at this point because it was a very difficult time for God's people. What's, what's encouraging for us is just like this time during Israel, I think we're probably heading into some very difficult times even in our own nation, especially for believers, for Christians. It's going to be difficult. Uh, we're living in, in times where we don't know what's going to happen with the economy. There's a lot of uncertainty with that, even though right now it's doing pretty good. But that can change overnight. Um, there's a lot of people that are um, living in fear of the government and society in general. They're, um, we see where the, the system is growing increasingly more hostile. We, we heard today where, I think it was in uh, uh, Australia, somewhere in Australia, if a pastor is found out to have converted someone who is a homosexual to Christianity, the penalty is 10 years in prison. Can you believe that? I can't believe that. I mean, I still got to fact check it, but that's what he said. And I thought, wow, that is amazing. If you're out there converting sinners for the glory of God, you're going to be held to account. You're going to be thrown into prison. That, that's kind of where we're headed. With all this government stuff that's coming down the pike. They're going to make it a crime to speak out about certain things. And... You know, yeah, we live in a free country, but I, you wonder how long that freedom is going to last. And even with that being said, this is happening under God's watch. This isn't catching God by surprise. You know, there's a lot of people that even said this last election that we just came through is either going to be a reprieve from God's judgment or 
a sign that God is kind of saying, yeah, you know what, I'm just going to let you have what you want. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's going to be the judging, judgment of God on our nation. And we see that. I mean, we see where they're glorifying sin. They're glorifying the murder of unborn children, all these things. And so we live in, we live in difficult times, and Israel was going through the same thing. And in some ways, we're living through times that strongly resemble the exact same thing that Gideon was dealing with, the same thing that he faced in his day. So that's his, his circumstances. It was a time of poverty, a time of persecution, a time of powerlessness. And, you know, as a church, now's the time we make the decision, well, what do we do? Do we cower in fear? Or do we stand up boldly for the cause of Christ and let the chips fall where they may? Uh, it's a way even of God's grace falling on the church in that, you know what, there's going to be a lot of people that go along with all this stuff. And as a result of that, I think that uh, God is separating <laughs> the false church from the, the true church as part of this, this taking place. But, so that's, that's verse 11 here. We see this, his circumstances. But then you see his commission there in verse 12. Now look, he's hiding out. He's fearful. He's just like the other people. And it says, the angel of the Lord. While, while Gideon is hiding from the enemy, the Lord ex- knew exactly where he was. Uh, it's just like when Adam and Eve sinned, right? What were they doing? They were high, they tried to hide from God. I mean, you can't hide from God. It's impossible. God knew exactly, the Lord knew exactly where Gideon was. And the verse says there, the angel of the Lord appeared to him. In verse 12. And said to him. This was no ordinary angel because verse 13 um, basically tells us that he calls the angel of the Lord. All right. When the Lord speaks to Gideon, he comes with words of not judgment per se, but hope and assurance. I mean, here's Gideon hiding from the enemy, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him. And what's, what's the angel of the Lord say in verse 12? The Lord is with you. And then look at this, O mighty man of valor. I mean, you can probably you know, sense Gideon standing there going, uh, you know, are you? Are you, are you talking to me? A mighty man of valor? Who are you talking to? You know, I'm hiding behind this wine press trying to, you know, winnow this little bit of, of wheat we have left. Nothing's going well. Who are you talking to? But God here basically gives him a, him a promise. Um, it says the Lord is with you. Here's what we call in, in the Old Testament or in the Scriptures a, a theophany. A theophany. And the theophany is the appearance of God in visible form to man. All right, it's happened throughout Scripture a lot. Um, specifically, this would be what we call a Christophany. All right, this is an appearance of the, the pre-incarnate Christ. And we'll see how that, why that is. But it's one of the many occasions in the Old Testament where Jesus in a pre-incarnate form, 
in the glory of God appeared to individuals before he was born in Bethlehem. It's happened quite a bit in the Old Testament. Um, I'll give you a list of some. You can just write them down if you want, but uh, just go through them quickly. In Genesis 3, 8, uh, you have the angel of the Lord appearing to Adam in Eden. In Genesis 18, you have the appearance of the, Lord, of the angel of the Lord to Abraham at his tent door. In Genesis 16, to Hagar in the wilderness. In Genesis 32, he appeared to Jacob at the river Jabbok. In Exodus 3, remember the, uh, Moses with the burning bush? All right. Or Numbers 22 the, to Balaam. Or Joshua 5, 13 to 15, Joshua at Jericho. Or even to the parents of Samson in Judges chapter 13, which we'll get to eventually. Um, now, the, it, what's interesting to me is that the Midianites did not know where Gideon was hiding. Or they would have came and taken the wheat. They didn't know that, but the Lord knew exactly where he was. Uh, he had his eye on Gideon the whole time. Even when Gideon was unaware of it, God was with him. God was watching him. God was planning for his future. Uh, that should comfort our hearts, should it not? The idea that God is, is with us no matter what. Uh, there's a couple verses here at Hebrews Chapter 13, verse 5, says, Keep your life from the free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, what? I will never leave you nor forsake you. All right, Jesus says, I will be with you, okay, continually till the end of, uh, end of the uh, the end of the ages in Matthew 28. As you go out, I'm going to be with you. And then in John chapter 14, verses 17 to 18, uh, Jesus even gives us a start in verse uh, 16 or 15 there. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 16, and I will ask the Father, Jesus says, and he will give you another helper or comforter to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, verse 17, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And so the Lord promises even us as believers that, you know what, there, there's no way He's ever going to bail. He's never going to turn his back on us as his children. Uh, the Lord is with us through every situation, in every situation, through every valley, across every mountain. No matter what happens in our life, the Lord is right there beside us. The Lord is with you. And literally, that means his power is on you. That's really what he's telling Gideon. More than just being with you. It's one thing to have the presence of God with you. But it's another thing to have his power on you. And assisting you. Now Gideon could not see it. He couldn't sense it. 
Uh, he didn't know what it, it looked like. But he was about to be used of the Lord in a very, very powerful way. And he probably would admit, look, I'm the last candidate for this. And what's encouraging for us as believers is that the same is true for us, is it not? Um, I mean, if we ever understand and grasp the truth that we are indwelt by the Spirit of God and that his limitless power is available to use in every circumstance that we find ourselves in, I think if we, if we could just understand a little bit of that, it will change the way we live our Christian lives. It could change the way we walk in our Christian lives. And so we have to, to see here that this promise was very clearly made to Gideon. <clears throat> that, you know what, I, I will be with you. But then also look at God's perception here of Gideon. And this is something that's pretty amazing. He looks at Gideon and he calls him a mighty what man of valor. A mighty man of valor. Here is a man who is so afraid of the enemy that he's hiding behind a wine press threshing his wheat. He's so full of fear, but the Lord saw what Gideon would be when he got through with him. See, God intended to take Gideon and use him in a great way. That's his purpose. That was his role. That was the plan of God for Gideon. And so when we, we see the, the Lord use this phrase here, a man who is, literally when he says a man of valor, he's really saying a man who is charging right into the face of the enemy. And that's why Gideon was probably so surprised at the, the angel of the Lord's words at this point. Like, who are you talking about? It doesn't make any sense. But that is who the Lord saw when he saw Gideon. And so many times we look at the mirror and we think, well, there's no way I could do this. For the Lord, I can do this. God can't use me. And we beat ourselves up all day long. And God is in heaven going, what are you talking about? I have an incredible plan for you. Why don't you just be quiet and go along with the plan and you'll be okay. <laughs> uh, turn over to Psalm 139 because there's there's something to be said when we understand what God sees and what we see because a lot of times it's it's two completely different things uh, and just like the Lord knew Gideon the Lord knew Gideon was hiding the Lord knew Gideon was full of fear but he still called him a mighty man of valor why because the Lord is able to see things far beyond what we are able to see. And Psalm 139 tells us why that is. And it tells us, this is a psalm of David, and he's asking God to search him. He says, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. And here, here's what David wants us to clearly understand. Here's what God understands about us as his children. You know when I sit up, or when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. In other words, he can understand what you're thinking. He doesn't even have to be there. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. The indication is that we don't make one move. We don't even raise our big toe without God noticing. He's acquainted with all of our ways. 
Verse 4, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind and before. The idea is you're building uh, protection around me. You lay your hand upon me. And then he admits in verse 6, he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. In other words, this is, this is unbelievable. What God knows about us. And then he switches and he starts to say, well, you know, not only do you know me, my thoughts and everything, but you, you're with me. He says, where shall I go from your spirit? Verse 7, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. I've heard some people say, well, yeah, when people go to hell, hell is the absence of God. That's not true. You're, you're just entertaining a different kind of presence of God. You're, you're entertaining his wrath in hell. But God is very much present. He's everywhere. That's what he says. Where can I go? Verse 9, if I take the wings in the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be as night, even the darkness is not dark to you. Why? Because he's God. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. So God, you know everything about me. You're with me continually. And you, you, you created me, verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, in, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me. Do you, do you hear the, the purpose and the plan and the providence of God here? When as yet there was none of them. God has a, has a purpose for you. He has a plan for you. He created you the way you are. You're not to, called to be somebody else. You're called to be exactly who God created you to be. And he desires to use you and we'll be here as long as god wants us on this earth not a second more not a second less the bible says very clearly it's appointed unto men once to die it's appointed so there's no no mistakes here there's there's you know there's no accidents that's, that's the secular mindset. But that's why, hopefully, we can sleep at night, right? That God is in control. Verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the thumb, sum of them. That's, that's kind of an interesting thing, the idea that God would even think of us, <laughs> let alone having... vast some of them he says if i would count them they are more than the sand i awake and i am still with you oh that you would 
Slay the wicked, O God, O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them and I, and with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He's, he's basically telling God, look, you, you know everything there is to know about me. And you still love me? I mean, he knows more about us than our spouses know about us. As far as the intents and motivations of our heart. He knows all that completely. And yet he still loves us. He still gave his son to die for us. He still desires to um, use us. In Hebrews 4.13, it says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, speaking of God, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I mean, sometimes when we look at our lives, if you're like me at all, you, you look at your life and you see your mistakes, you see your failures, you see your problems, and you may see a person in the mirror who's constantly failing to live up to God's high calling for your life. You see a person who maybe loses much more than he wins <laughs> the battles with sin. You see a person who, for the most part, is always just a little bit short. They're coming up a little bit short. You never seem to measure up. But what does God see? That's what really matters. It doesn't matter what we see. What does he see? When Jesse looked at David, what did he see? He saw his youngest son, right? He saw a mere boy who was not worthy to even be called to a family meeting with Samuel when they were going through who would be recommended as the king. Well, that little runt, don't, don't invite him. He's definitely not going to be the guy. But guess what had happened? <laughs> when God looked at David, who did he see? He didn't see a little runt. He saw the king. He saw a king. When Gideon's family looked at him, he probably, they probably saw a weakling. They saw him hiding behind a wine press, doing the, you know, well, boy, he's a man of valor. We don't think so. He's hiding with us. He's fearful as we are. But when the Lord looked at him, when the Lord looked at Gideon, what did he see? He saw a warrior. And why is that? Because the... 1 Samuel 16, 7 tells us that the Lord doesn't work, look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at what? He looks at the heart. He knows what we will be when he gets through with his purpose for us. Um, the best thing you can do in life is take your life with all its problems, with all its failures, with all its shortcomings, all that, and do what? And place them in the hand of God. And say, here you go, Lord. <laughs> here's all my <laughs> sinfulness. Here's all my shortcomings. Here's all my failures. Here's all my issues. It's yours. I, di I just want to be used by you. And what does he do? He's able to take us and transform us into something 
powerful, something amazingly used by God. You think of illustrations in the Bible. You think of Saul. I don't think Saul would be on the short list to write most of the New Testament when he was out there killing the Christians. I don't think most of people would say, oh, he's the guy. He's going to be used mightily by God. No, he's out there murdering Christians. But what was God's plan for Saul? To come to him. And when he did, what happened? Incredible. God used him in a, in a miraculous way. Or somebody like Simon Peter. Pendulumic Peter. You know, one minute he's willing to die for Christ, the next minute he's denying Christ. How could God use anybody that's just being tossed to and fro? How could he possibly? But that's the purpose of God. And so he used Peter in an incredible way. You think of us. <laughs> you know, there, there's no way probably many of us before we were Christians say, yeah, one day I'm going to be going to church and I'm going to be involved in the church and I'll be, be coming out to Wednesday night Bible studies and I'll be doing all. No. You may have been one of those people who said, never, I'm never doing that. But what happened? God got a hold of your heart. You submitted to his will, not your own. And here you are. And God is using us in ways that we could never be used if we were just left on our own. And so, you know, it's, it's important to understand that God's perception should mean something to us. And I think that's one of the, the major things that is, is really a, a, a issue with a lot of Bible-believing Christians. They believe the Bible, they believe, but the one area they're lacking is they don't understand what the Bible says about who they are in Christ. And so, you know, when they slip up and they fall into a sin or whatever, uh, you know, the enemy comes and piles all this, this weight of, of sin on us, and we fail to understand that, wait a minute, this sin is forgiven. This isn't who I am in Christ. I need to go back to the Lord. I need to confess this sin and say, God, you know, I'm sorry this happened, but I don't want it to happen again. I, I want to live a life that's honoring to who God has called me to be. And see, when you begin to understand your position in Christ and how that cannot change, it gives you a sense of boldness. It'd be like going into a boxing match knowing somehow if you could know that you're going to win. If you're boxing Mike Tyson. And you've never boxed before. But God told you, you know what? You got the, don't worry about it. Make it to the third round. Third round, you're going to knock him out. I mean, if you really believe that in your heart because you knew that was going to happen. Oh, wow, he hit me. Yeah, he knocked me down. That's all right. I know what's going to happen in the third round. I mean, you could, you could be a little bold, couldn't you? Dance around the ring a little bit. And maybe he hit you 10 more times. But you knew, because God is true, the third round's coming, I'm going to knock this guy out. And see, that is, when you think of our position in Christ, we're on the winning team, right? We're on the winning side. The battle's over. Christ is already the victor. He's already picked us to be on his team. It's not something that's up in the air. And so we need to be reminded of that. So as a child of the Most High God, in Christ, we have certain advantages that the enemy doesn't have. 
we understand that we have a God who will never leave us nor forsake us. We understand that Scripture says that Christ has already defeated Satan on the cross. We already understand that God knows us better than we know ourselves, that God has a purpose, a plan. He spent all this time working with all the intricacies of our personality and the way we look and everything before we were ever even born. We weren't a mistake. We're the work of God. And so when you begin to understand that and you begin to believe that, you honestly can assess and say, wow, okay, wait a minute. God does have a purpose for me. And I am living for him every day. And it gives you a little brighter reason to wake up every morning. See, that's part of the problem with this whole keeping everybody <laughs> locked away during this pandemic. You know, suicide rate has gone through the roof. Drug addiction has gone through the roof. All these bad things are happening. Why? Because people are starving for social interaction. They're, they're, they're starving to be out amongst people. And so what happens is depression sets in, all this stuff sets in, because it's just a losing battle. And at some point, it takes its toll. And so it's, it's important to power through that. And you can do that when you understand that, wait a minute, God has a purpose here. He has a plan. You know, God had a purpose. He had a plan for 9-11. God had a purpose. He had a plan for this last election. He had a purpose. He had a plan for the pandemic, when it hit, how it hit, what the, what the government's reaction, well, all that is part of God's plan. And so we have to understand that. If we don't understand that, you're going to end up like Gideon and, and you're going to start questioning God's purpose for you. And this is where we see here in verses 13 to 16 some of his confusion. Because when Gideon hears the words of the angel of the Lord here, of Christ, he's blown away by what he hears. He, he just can't understand how God is talking to him. And so he reacts... And rather than just saying, okay, God, got it, what's he do? He reacts and he begins to question the Lord's words, which most of us do every day, don't we? God, if you love me so much, why is all this happening? Why do I have this? Why is this problem? Why is that? Why is this happening to me? Why, you know, we go down the list and we forget to realize that, you know what, this may be part of God's grace, camouflage. We're not seeing it as grace right now but it is. And so in verse 13, it says, And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, he's polite at least, you know, it's the angel of the Lord, right? Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? What's he do? He questions God's presence. Uh, Gideon wants to know where the proof of God's presence can be found. Because they're having such a difficult time of it and what he's saying is if god was really with his people shouldn't they be experiencing victory instead of defeat i mean these midianites are killing us every day they're just wiping us out and and yet god you're the angel of the lord here saying oh i'm with you i don't think so i'm not feeling it so he questions god's presence and that's what happens to a lot of believers even when they go through a hard time where are you god and their fists rise up in anger to God, saying, how dare you allow this to happen to me? Because they can't understand that maybe what's happening to them is part of God's gracious plan for them. To change their heart, to change their attitude, 
to conform them more into the image of his son. And then he questions God's performance. He says, where are all these wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us? Saying, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? So he, he wants us to see here that where, where, where are all these miracles? Nothing's happening right now with Israel. It's been 250 years since God delivered them, delivered Egypt, or delivered Israel from Egypt through all the, the plagues and all that stuff. Remember all that? It's been 200 years since the Jordan parted and Israel crossed over on dry land into the promised land. And, and, and Gideon is simply asking a very honest question. Where is the God who performed all those miracles? We're not seeing any miracles right now. And that's his, his questioning there. But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And then he begins to question God's perception. Look at verse 14. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do, do not I send you? And he even answers back to God. Now remember, he's talking to God. He's talking to Christ here through this Christophany. He says in verse 15, And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? I know you just told me that's going to happen, but wait a minute. I don't believe it. Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least in my father's house. And so when the Lord hears Gideon's questions, he responds by telling him that he will indeed save Israel. God has sent him. He'll be successful in his quest to defeat all the Israeli enemies. And he basically says, wait a minute. You know, I don't think you're, you really know what you're talking about. He's questioning God's omniscience. He's basically saying, Lord, you can't be right. This is impossible. And he says it can't be right for two reasons. First of all, his father's house is poor, thus no one will follow him. He doesn't even have the own support of his own household. And then number two, no one in his father's house respects him. So he has no resources to do what God's calling him to do, and nobody expects him to do it. They, they disrespect him. And you learn in a, further down in verse 25 that Gideon's father, in verse 25 it tells us, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has. So there was some reasoning why Gideon was feeling, wait a minute, I think he got the wrong guy here. His dad, his own dad, was an idolater. And that may be, some people believe that Gideon was an outcast within his own family because he refused to worship their false gods. So he set himself apart from his own family, some commentators believe. I mean, it's very similar to us. You know, we, we know the Lord wants us to serve him. We might even understand what he wants us to do and how he wants to use us for his glory. But we're so 
paralyzed with fear in our, our own sense of inability, well, I could never do that, then what do we do? We refuse to trust him. And God is saying, hey, I, just trust me. I want to use you in this way. And you know what? Gideon did the same thing that Moses did when the Lord called him from the burning bush. You remember that? What'd they do? They come up with excuses. Well, you can't use me, Lord. I can't do what you're asking me to do. Even though you said I could do it. I don't believe that. So they're really calling God a liar (laughs) in a roundabout way. I mean, both men, Moses and Gideon, felt like this job that God was calling to do was clearly over their heads. Both of them felt very inadequate for the task that God had called them to. And I don't know about you, but I feel the same way. I mean, we all feel that way sometimes. We do the same things. God impresses on our heart to do something. Ah, not me. I can't do that. Who am I? See, the real problem with Gideon and with Moses, and frankly with us as well, is that we tend to focus on what we are what we view ourselves to be and not on who God is. So we we got this problem where we're gazing at our navels too much. I could never do this. I could never do that. And we fail to realize that, you know what? God is not asking you to do something that he cannot accomplish through you. That's the whole the whole purpose. Without the Lord, what are we? We're weak. We're frail. I mean, if you come into ministry with the attitude of, oh, I got this, no problem. Red flag. You're, you're in big trouble. Without the Lord, we're weak, we're frail, we're failures. And, but with him, whereas God declares us to be, we're mighty warriors. And through God's power, we can pull down strongholds in psalm 127 psalm 127 verse 1 it says unless the lord what builds the house those who build it labor in vain Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. In other words, without God's direct intervention in our lives, we're nothing. We don't have anything. In John chapter 15, verse 5, it basically talks about the, the vine. And he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And then he says those haunting words, what? For apart from me, you can do some things. No, you can do nothing. The idea is nothing pleasing, nothing satisfactory, nothing that's going to be of any worth to me. If you do it on your own, it's a waste. And so we need to be dependent on on God, on the Lord. 
And in Philippians chapter 4.13, I can do all things, right? Through Christ who strengthens me. That's such an important aspect and mindset to have. Because when we get our focus off ourselves and we put it on our God, is anything impossible? No. No, we need to be more God conscious and stop looking at our own abilities. Because the Bible tells us that we can't do anything left to our own selves. But we have to believe that He can use us. He wants to use us. And if you come to a place where you can understand that, that the simple fact that He is able, even if I'm not, <laughs> He is still able. And He will accomplish whatever He wants to accomplish in my life, that you can be used of the Lord. Now Gideon isn't there yet because he's making excuses. He's making excuses why he can't do what the Lord's calling him to do. And sometimes that's part of the process, right? But his, his excuses here are twofold. He tells the Lord that he did not have fortune or fame. He tells the Lord that he can't afford to do the Lord's work. And he tells the Lord basically that um, nobody knows who he is. So I don't have any money and nobody knows who I am. How can you possibly use me? But what does 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes, and remember who Paul was, he, he was a converted Pharisee, one who was steeped in his religion. Verse 1, verse 26, 1 Corinthians 1, 26, For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But verse 27, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no, look at this, verse 29, no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ. Not because of yourself. Because of Him, you are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Verse 31, So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, what? Boast in the Lord. Boast in the Lord. God specializes in using those who can't accomplish His work here in the world. Those are the kind of people he chooses to use. He used Abraham, a pagan from Ur of the Chaldeans, to be the father of the faithful. He wouldn't be a likely choice. He used Jacob, who was a liar, to be the father of the nation of Israel. He used Joseph, who was a slave, to save the world. He used Moses, a shepherd and a murderer, by the way, to deliver his people. He used Jephthah, the son of a prostitute, to deliver Israel. He used some unnamed servant girl to tell Naaman about God. Her name's not even mentioned. He used Esther, 
a slave to deliver Israel. He used Matthew in the New Testament, who was a tax collector, one of the worst professions you could possibly have on the, as far as respect goes. They were basically thieves that were allowed to do what they did by the government, kind of like the IRS today, but <laughs> a tax collector to write about Jesus, the king of the Jews. He used Saul of Tarsus that we spoke of to write over half of the New Testament. And he used Israel, who's crying out for a deliverer. And who did he raise up? He raised up Gideon. See, God used all these people and countless others throughout the scriptures and throughout history. Why? Because they were available to him to be used. Some of them by protest, granted. But they said, okay, finally they, they gave in. They said, all right, God, this is what you want me to do, I'll do it. I challenge all of us to stop making excuses why God can't do what God wants to do through you. Stop. Just get about to doing it. God has a calling on you. He has a ministry for you. He has something for you to do far more than what you're doing now because none of us have arrived. And so if we believe that, then we need to put that into practice. There are some here today who should be preaching. There are some here today who should be teaching Sunday school. There are some here today who should be serving in, in some other ministry somehow. And God's just saying, look, I want to use you. I want to be working through you. Just stop protesting and just let me do what I want to do. And this was part of Gideon's confusion. Because he wasn't seeing God for who he was. He was looking at himself for how he perceived himself to be. And that's the first mistake. I mean, if, if, if we were honest with ourselves, none of us would ever look at ourselves and say, oh, I'm qualified. God, yeah, you, you have to use me. We wouldn't say that. None of us are qualified to be used by the Lord. That's the whole point. <laughs> it's only when God brings us to that point of dependence upon him and we say, okay, God, I'm done with my agenda. I want yours. That's when God can work. That's when God can use us. The last thing here tonight is God's or Gideon's confirmation in verses 16 to 24. In verse 16, the Lord affirms to Gideon what he's saying. He says, And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Now that, that would be a little scary. <laughs> you mean I'm going up against this whole crew by myself? Don't worry, I'm going to be with you. Um, he tells Gideon that he'll be able to destroy the Midianites as if they were just a single man. I mean, in other words, he's going to use Gideon in, a, in the most powerful, amazing fashion. All he has to do is go with God. And, but, but Gideon is still not ready to simply follow the Lord. He's just not there yet. He wants some proof. He says, you know, is this really God who's talking to me? How do I know? <laughs> Am I just, you know, eat some bad pizza or something? Maybe I have a bad dream. So he, he, Gideon asks for a sign. 
And this will not be the last time he does this either, by the way. Um, I'm so thankful we serve a God who's patient with us. Can you say amen to that? Man, I am. I, I mean, sometimes, you know, you protest, you protest. Oh, I don't want to do that. I don't feel comfortable doing that, whatever. And yet, God persists. And then, you know, he uses you in some way you'd never even imagine. And then something else comes up, and rather than saying, well, God worked out the last one, what do we do? We protest. We go through the whole cycle again. And God is patient with us. You know, he's working us through this process. Um, I mean, Gideon should have just done what the Lord told him to do, right? I mean, this is the Lord talking to him, the angel of the Lord. He should have just said, okay, yeah, you're God. I'm not. I get it. I don't understand this, but let's go. But, and so should we. But God graciously gave Gideon the sign he requested. He's confirmed by a presentation in verses 18 to 21. Gideon wants to make an offering for the Lord. That's what the present, the word present means there. The Lord promises to wait until Gideon returns. I mean, just the audacity of that. I mean, you're standing there talking with God. Okay, God, you know what? Just hold on a second. I'll be right back. <laughs> Who would do that? But God's patient. Okay, I see what's happening. He goes in, he prepares a goat and cakes made from 35 pounds of flour, which was a real sacrifice, because remember they were poor. Some broth. This was a, a sacrificial offering from his family who lived in poverty. I'm sure his family was thrilled with this idea. But it's amazing to see the transformation of Gideon. When the angel of the Lord found him, here he was hiding. He was trying to protect this small amount of grain that he had. He didn't want to willingly give away a huge meal at all. So at least he reached a place where he was willing to yield the things to God that he cherished. The very sustenance for his body. And so when Gideon presents his offering, he's instructed to place it on a rock. And so he does so. And when he does, the Lord touches the offering with this staff, the end of the staff, lightsaber, whatever it was. I mean, it was something pretty crazy. And when he does, fire comes out of the rock and consumes the sacrifice. And I love what it says here because It says, And the angel of the Lord reached out the tip, verse 21, of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. And then verse 22. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. You think? You know, how many times has God done something just incredible in your own life? And you walk away going, man, that's, that's so cool. God, praise God, or whatever. And then, you know, the two months later, you find yourself in another situation, and you're whining and crying and hiding in the closet. It doesn't make any sense, but that's life, right? That's how it works sometimes. And here Gideon is, is just blown away by this. And the Lord is telling Gideon that he will be with him to comfort him, to control him, to protect, or to control, to protect, and lead him as well. And in receiving this sacrifice, as he did, that's what the Lord was teaching Gideon, that everything is going to be all right. 
And the Lord uses this staff to work this miracle. And this staff was a instrument that was used by a shepherd. And the staff was used by the shepherd sometimes to comfort an animal or control an animal, protect it, lead the sheep. And, and I read one thing where it says sometimes the shepherd would have a rogue, <laughs> a rogue sheep, like one that would keep on running away. And what the shepherd would do is he would take that staff and he would hit one of the legs of the sheep and actually break the bone in the sheep, cause harm to the sheep. But it prevented that sheep from ever wandering too far from the flock again. And so even though it inflicted pain to the sheep, it was, it was good in the overall nature that it protected the sheep's life. See, sometimes God allows things into our lives that we perceive as bad. But God is saying, no, there's a purpose for this. You're not seeing it now. You know, yeah, your, your leg hurts because you, you know, you're not allowed to run away anymore, so I had to break your leg, so I'm going to keep you right here, close to me, as your shepherd. I don't want you running away. And so the end result is what? Our, our protection. And God is doing that because he loves us. And so it was a way of teaching Gideon that he needed not to fear, really, where the Lord was leading him because he wanted Gideon to understand that, you know what, look, where, where I lead you, where I'm guiding you, I will provide for you. And that's what I never understood about some people in ministry is they'll, God gives them a great vision. <laughs> some glorious vision, so they say. And then they're on the airwaves for the next 10 years begging for people to give to support the vision that nobody's providing anything for. You know, so you got to go back and you got to say, wait a minute, was this from God? Because if it was from God, God would provide. Uh, but it was also a sign that where the Lord had, had kind of accepted Gideon, God had come to Gideon, called him, commissioned him, and then what did he do? He accepted his sacrifice. He accepted his sacrifice. And all this was basically the Lord's way of telling Gideon that he was going to use him in a great way. Uh, and, and that's what's required of us, is it not? It, you know, we can say, well, I've got to, I want you to use me, I want you to use me. But if you never present yourself to God, if you never say, hey, God, you know what, here I am. Take me, use me. It doesn't matter whether it's here, whether it's in India, whether it's in China, where, wherever. I just want to be used by you. I, I want you to, to work through me in a way that uh, I can't do it on my own. And God will do that. Just present yourself to him, and he will use you. And his will is that we make an offering just like Gideon did. And that's what, even in Romans, it talks about us being a spiritual sacrifice, right? God is not interested in our goats. He's not interested in our cakes. He's not interested in our broth. What is God interested in? He was interested in Gideon. <laughs> He said, I'm going to do something through you, but we'll go through all this hocus-pocus stuff here just to make it very clear. I'm interested in you, Gideon. He wants us to place everything that we are on the altar. He wants us to yield ourselves totally to his will. And guess what? When we do that, that's when God 
can use us in a way that we would never even imagine or believe. And that's what Romans 12 says, does it not? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, verse 1, by the mercies of God, what does Paul tell us to do? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. I think some people forget the living part. So they just act like they're dead. Now, we're called to be living sacrifices. Holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And he says, do not be conformed to this world. <coughs> Why? Because it's passing away. This is not an eternal state we're living in here as far as this world. This is temporary. But he says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I mean, if you could know the perfect will of God for you, who wouldn't want that as his child? I mean, if God could show up here and give you a note and say, here, here's the plan for the next 40 years for your life, or 30 years, or five years, or two weeks, whatever it might be, wouldn't you want to open up that letter and go, man, what's God have in store for me? And then you would do everything possible, hopefully, to live in accord to his will. And so that, those verses teach us completely yielding ourselves to the Lord. And when we do, that's when we're able to recognize, that's when we're able to accept that perfect will of God for us. Um, knowing the will of God is as simple as yielding your life to him and then doing whatever you desire to do. It's nothing more than that. Because God declares, if you're following him, if you're concerned in doing the will of God, then he'll give you the desires of your heart. Well, the second thing here, in verses 22-24, quickly, is he is confirmed by a promise. Gideon now recognizes just who he is dealing with. And when he does, he's filled with fear and he cries out to the Lord. And God responds by speaking peace to Gideon's heart. He promises Gideon that he will not die. Verse 22 there. Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face, but the Lord said to him, hey, wait a minute, peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. <laughs> That's a nice little verse there. God responds by speaking peace to his heart. Gideon then builds an altar and he worships the Lord and he calls the altar Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace. How did he find peace? He found peace in submitting to God's will. He found peace in worshiping the Lord. And when he submitted, basically, to the Lord's will for his life, and when he fell before the Lord in humble worship, Gideon found a place of comfort. When you're fighting against God, you're not ever going to be in a place of comfort. When you're unwilling to do what God is calling you to do, you're not going to be in a place of comfort. And that still is true today. If you want turmoil, if you want pain, if you want anxiety, tribulation in your soul, just walk a different path than the one God has planned for your life. And that's exactly what you'll reap. If you want sleepless nights and dreary days, just refuse to do what God is calling you to do. And that's what will result. But if you want joy, if you want peace, if you want true happiness, 
You're only going to find it in surrounding your life, surrendering your life to the will of God, to the will of God. And until you do what the Lord wants you to do, you're never really going to know true peace and true happiness and true genuine worship. Um, it's giving up your own agenda. He's not going to change his mind. God's will, God's purpose for you is what it is. It's not, it's not going to change. And so you, you have to just do what he's asking you to do. It's not going to go away. You know, it always, it's always funny because sometimes, you know, when you watch some of these shows on TV or they used to have them on, you know, bounty hunters or whatever, and these people are running from the police. And finally they catch the person in, in the apartment or in the house. And they're standing outside with, you know, 12 police officers surrounding the house. And they know the person's in there. And they got a bullhorn. They're like, look, just give it up. You're not going to go anywhere. The game's over. Just give it up. And they won't. <laughs> you know, so what do they do? I mean, I saw one guy where he tried to hide in this, in this, I don't know if it was like a cooler or whatever. It was horrible. You know, and it's like, okay, well, they're not going to find me in here. It's like, Really? <laughs> And it's just so much easier just to give in and say, okay, God, you know what? I just want to do what you want me to do. Um, you know, it doesn't look like Gideon's going to amount to much from the outside. Just seeing what we see. He's fearful. He's timid. He's filled with self-doubt. He has more questions than he has answers. And you know what? Gideon is being brought to a place of service. And the Lord is willing to take Gideon and he's willing to Take him just as he is, just like he takes us as we are, and shape us into what he wants us to be. And so as we, the next couple of weeks, look at Gideon, stop and ask yourself, what about you? Are you willing to do what the Lord wants you to do? Have you found that place of service that he saved you to fill? Are you content to stand back and just watch others do ministry? Are you fearful? Has he been calling you to do something, but you're holding back? Maybe you're making excuses why you can't do what he wants you to do. You know, he wants you to surrender. Just give it up. It's just so much easier that way. And today would be a good day just to come to Jesus as you are. We come to Christ as we are, and we say, Lord, here I am. Take me, use me. Let the Lord have his way in your life. And you, you'll be amazed at what he does. You truly will. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the example of Gideon. We thank you for his doubts and his fears and his cowering and everything that we see here. But Lord, we know that you had a plan for him. And we will see how that plan carries, is carried out. Because ultimately he does surrender to you and he is used by you in, a, in an incredible way. And so, Lord, we pray that same thing for us as believers, that we would stop the navel-gazing, stop looking in the mirror and trying to understand why you can never use us and looking at all our inadequacies and looking at all our failures and our faults. And yet, God, that's not how you see us. You see us as someone who can be used by you 
in remarkable ways. And Lord, we, we thank you for that. And Lord, we pray that you'll give us the faith to believe that as well. And then to act upon it. And be involved. In ministering to people and ministering within the church and doing these things for you. Because we know that you want to use us in a greater way. Help us never grow complacent in ministry. Help us never believe that what we do is enough. Because, Lord, we understand as we're going to celebrate this Sunday, Communion Sunday, that thank God you didn't have that attitude. That you gave the very best, the very most for us through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, Father, we thank you for that. And we just pray that we would do the same. That we would live, be a living sacrifice for your glory and for your honor. And, Father, we just thank you and we praise you. Give us a good night tonight and take us home safely. In Jesus' name, amen.